now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. How do people in warm climates handle this whole quarantine thing? The second the sun came out, all I wanted to do was go outside and be around people. And it makes me feel like there's really nothing wrong going on. We just can't have a party. I don't really give a shit anymore. Sun's out. It's not 40 degrees and raining for 10 days straight. I'm with you, but I've talked to family in Texas where it's like 90 degrees right now, and all they want to do is stay inside. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll take that. Anyways. Hi, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by, wow, uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Uh, Before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. If you guys have uh, questions, comments, beer suggestions, want to share us with your friends, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics, where uh, we are currently doing uh, our live shows. So you can log on to Facebook right now uh, and throw some questions up there, throw some comments, um, fun stuff like that. We'll we'll definitely try and pay attention to that as the show goes on. Um, the podcast itself, you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We appreciate the support. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, and then something else, as my brain takes a second to figure it out, uh, our merch line. Uh, you can find on teespring.com. Uh, you'll find a direct link on our social channels, uh, so check that out. Uh, hoodies, T-shirts, mugs, uh, fun stuff like that with our logo on it. Um, we'll be adding more things at some point, uh, after the coronavirus depression, uh, subsides, uh, and I decide to shave again at some point. Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely check that out. It's, it's cool stuff. It's, uh, it's really good. Um, yeah, like, um, again, we, we, we keep talking about that. Um, we need to talk about things other than the, uh, the, um, the pandemic, but somehow everything ends up relating to that anyways. And it's probably doing a disservice to not talk about something that's at least tangentially related to that. Um, biggest thing this week would probably be, uh, Wisconsin, um, which is, which, which is a huge deal, uh, in a lot of circles, less so in some circles, but, um, Bill, can you give us a, a rundown of, uh, what happened this week? Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, my home state of Wisconsin was at the center of our national political debate yesterday as it decided to hold its primary elections during the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, Not surprising, this turned out to be a total disaster. Voters in Milwaukee, many wearing masks, waited in line for hours because the city could only find enough workers to open five polling stations. They normally have 180. The election went ahead after the Republican-controlled state legislature and the conservative majority in the state's Supreme Court blocked Democratic Governor Tony Evers, executive order 
order to cancel in-person voting. These political and legal battles are a likely preview of the coming national fight over voting rights in the year of COVID-19. And a decision late Monday night, the U.S. Supreme Court's conservative majority also dealt its own blow to Wisconsin Democrats. In a five to four vote, the majority ruled against their attempt to extend the deadline for absentee voting in Tuesday's election, saying such a change, quote, fundamentally alters the nature of the election, unquote. The court's four liberals members dissented, with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg writing, quote, the court's order, I feel, fear will result in massive disenfranchisement. French disenfranchisement. That's a big word. Uh, Wisconsin stands as the first test case in what both national parties expect to be a protect, protracted fight over changing voter rules to contend with the pandemic, potentially the biggest voting rights battle since the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Many Democrats have advocated a universal vote by mail system, but Republicans have expressed concern over mail voting and are pushing for a mu- as much in-person voting as possible. Phil, I've taken you on a tour of some of Milwaukee's finest beer establishments. What's your <laughs> sense of what we saw play out in Wisconsin yesterday. Um, so I, I, the story is, I think, fascinating because it is, uh, I don't know, to, to people outside of Wisconsin, it may seem, you know, like a local-ish story that's irrelevant. But yeah, this is a microcosm of our political environment, right? The, the sort of extreme partisanship, the extent to which people are sort of willing to go to ensure that they stay in power. Um you know, the question about how November is going to go, what we're going to do about it, depending on where the, the situation is um, with uh, coronavirus, uh, issues with the Supreme Court. Like, it, it would be fascinating to have Tom on to talk to him about this this decision. Um, so there's so many. It's, it's, you know, this very specific story, but it deals with voting rights. It deals with coronavirus. It deals with partisanship. It brings in the court. So I, I feel like we need to touch on all of those. Um, I kind of want to start with the Supreme Court uh, because I, I this I, I, I'm curious to get your the, your impressions. I would love to hear Tom's impression um, as well because I as, as I looked at the decision, my read of it was essentially that they overturned a lower court's decision based on precedent. There was a precedent set five five ish years ago in a case that basically said uh, making changes to elections and election rules right before the election is, you know, it causes confusion and that's a problem. That seems like a bullshit (laughs) response to me for for a couple of reasons. I I shouldn't say it that strongly. I I don't understand that logic for a couple of reasons. Um, One, what they did was make changes to an election the night before an election. So the thing that they're saying is problematic is also what they're doing. They basically made it so that people couldn't vote by mail, right? They had to go in person if they didn't have their their uh, their absentee ballot in 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 hand. I, I don't know. This seems pretty straightforward. I, a lot of the legal scholars I saw that I you know follow on on Twitter and whatnot seemed to think that this was a pretty straight kind of you know, this fell along party lines. I know Tom likes to talk about how the, the the different justices in the court aren't necessarily politically motivated. This felt politically motivated. And I, and I, I don't see the sort of constitutional or legal justification for overturning this. I, all I see is kind of a political justification. Am I, I mean, am I jumping in the deep end too quick here? Should we go back to something else or do you see it differently than, than, than I'm seeing it? 
No, I think that's we can we can touch on all the issues, but I think this is a good place to start. And I, I yeah, so you 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 made the right point where you said that you're not supposed to touch elections or mess with elections, change with elections under ordinary circumstances. And and then the question is, was this an ordinary circumstance or was this an extraordinary circumstance? I can fully appreciate the court not wanting to intervene in local elections, right? To defer two states and to say, this is up to you. Um, but in this circumstance, it's a really, really interesting question because what had happened is that um, everything had happened so recently that basically the, the a million, over a million people requested these absentee ballots and the state didn't get them out. Uh, some of them got out, but there were a lot of people who were still waiting for their absentee ballots. So then the question is that what the governor tried to do was to extend that so that everybody could receive their ballots and then mail them in by such because, a date. Because it was no fault. It wasn't by fault of the voters, right? They had done everything right. 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 So, yeah, in that, in the broader context of the coronavirus. So this was this is where I keep wondering, is this not an extraordinary circumstance where maybe the court should step back and say it's up to those states to make those decisions, right? Uh, and, and, and just basically let the ruling stand. I was surprised they intervened and they had to know. The worst thing the court wants these days is a five to four ruling in a tense presidential like election. I mean, this what happened in Wisconsin is the exact disaster scenario in November. If you have a close state uh, where there's issues about who's going to vote, who's not going to vote, and then the Supreme Court ultimately decides that this is Bush v. Gore all over again. And and for those reasons, I was kind of surprised that the that they couldn't come up with some sort of consensus. This is the moment when you needed a nine nothing decision, whatever it was. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm surprised too. I don't I, I I still struggle with how partisan are the motivations of the individuals on the court. Uh, but this certainly it appears that way. Uh, the the issue that I have with this is what constitutes an extraordinary circumstance. And realistically, the only people or the only body that should be able to determine that is the state or federal legislature, which they decided not to do. You can fault them for that. I certainly fault them for that. And realistically, I think that the blame for all of this, I I don't necessarily agree with the outcome of this, but I understand the, the, the legal precedent and legal understanding of how they came to this decision. So Looking at this a little bit more in depth, the devil is in the details. So first and foremost, the case wasn't about whether the election was going to be held. It was about counting absentee ballots that were postmarked after April 7th, the day of the election. And the deadline had already been extended for that to April 13th. So the question was really about whether the absentee ballots could be postmarked after election day. Right. So. The district court uh, in uh, in Wisconsin ordered that people could vote after Election Day as long as the ballots were received by April 13th. Um, But they also ordered that no election results could be announced pending the arrival of the late votes for at least six days. We are in the weeds, Nick. We are in the weeds. But but this is the thing. And realistically, this isn't about disenfranchising people. It's not about whether we're going to have an election or not. This is about precedent and the law as it stands right now. So realistically, all the things that the district court said were not measures that were originally requested by either the DNC or the Wisconsin Democrats. They took it upon themselves to do that. So in terms of the way that the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court case shook out, this was major, in their opinion, judicial intervention, practically on Election Day. 
which seems exceptionally problematic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the dissent pretty much focused on disenfranchisement, um, whether people were getting the the ballots on time or not. Um, at least from what I understood, five times the amount of people uh, that would normally request absentee ballots requested them this time. And it seemed like the vast majority of them were getting them. Yes. Again, could it have the, the date have been extended further? Yeah. If you legislated correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking about looking at this through a partisan lens. The other part of this is that the, uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, blocked the governor's uh, executive order attempting to postpone the state's uh, primary along with all of the the, the hundreds of, of uh, local elections that, that were part of this as well. Um, he took unilateral action after his request was refused during a special legislative section or uh, a session. But prior to this, he had admitted that his hands were tied in postponing the election and that the legislature would have to do so. And then the but, legislature wasn't willing to do it, right? So, yeah, right. that's what he felt so he then had. To, yeah. He went forward saying that he could, he had the unilateral authority under existing law to effectively suspend elections practically on election day, which is a precedent I don't really think you want to set, saying that a state or local or federal official can suspend an election without, you know, significant. Um, debate within a state or local or federal legislature and he the the language that he used was exceptionally vague he's citing stuff from the state constitution about promoting general welfare and a state law that gives governors emergency powers to issue orders as they deem necessary for the security of persons and property that's about it like I, 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 like, I get it. I, I get the ramifications of this. It was but... a Hail Mary by the governor, right? I think right. he, yeah, he realized he didn't have the power, but felt like he had to try something. Yes. Uh, my point is that I, I don't agree with the way that this shook out, but it is not the court's job to kiss your boo-boos and make it better and go after your bully. You so... have to do that yourself. So I'll disagree with you because I think that is exactly the court's job, right? So when the government screws you over and in some way damages or takes away your rights, that's why the court is is there to do that. So I do understand what you're, I totally get what you're saying. And and the idea of this is, you know, you're, the, the argument for the court's decision is that they are stepping into this sort of governmental overreach. But I, I think it is about disenfranchisement, right? I mean, the, it is... The, the fact that the the majority decision didn't mention coronavirus at all is bizarre to me. I mean, if to say that it's not disenfranchisement, it's not in this like literal, you know, straightforward kind of way, but, you know, to come up with a, a, you know, an over the top analogy, right? If, if there are armed people standing outside of the polling place saying, we're going to shoot any black person that shows up. And then the court says, no, you still got to go vote, right? If you want to vote, you got to vote. And the, the threat, you know, you don't, the threat doesn't come into whether or not you're disenfranchised because you still have a choice. I mean, that's the, the, it's not that far, but, but we're in a time where we're telling people to stay home. People who are older are at very high risk. And so to tell them basically you have to go out and basically risk your health in this unprecedented time, right? This nothing like this has happened for a hundred years since the Spanish flu. So to say, and, and I, I go back to the fact that the voters who had requested ballots but hadn't gotten them, it, it shows the extremity of the situation and that the, the government couldn't get that many ballots out because this they had no idea to expect this many because nothing like this had happened. There was no reason to think that there would be this many. And so 
people who had done everything right to tell them, you now have to risk your health to go out and wait for five hours. We can't even get people to man the polling stations. But if you don't, if you don't want your vote to count, you have to go out and do it. That seems like, you know, we are talking about government power, but we're also talking about voting rights, which is another constitutional thing, which I think it's, it would be totally reasonable for the court to say in this instance, yeah, voting rights trump whether or not there's a disagreement at the state level about, you know, the date that this is a reasonable accommodation to say, yeah, if, you know, the government, if, if they've mailed out the ballot, if everyone who requested a ballot by the end date, if they've mailed them, then we have to accommodate their ability to actually submit those within reason. Mm-hmm. This is another one of those issues where so much of it depends on what you focus on. So if you're looking at like, well, Nick, if you look at what the governor did, I think it's fair to say that the governor exceeded what he has power wise in terms of postponing the election. Um, So is that the graver problem or to Phil's point is the fact that that citizens who've requested absentee ballots within the normal time frame, right? I mean, they did everything right. They gave the two weeks notice, whatever it was, hadn't got those ballots is like their disenfranchisement, the bigger issue. Uh, And that's where we saw, you know, the court where the court came and said, no, the vote changing the votes is bigger than disenfranchisement, which I think is a preview of what we can expect from this court. If other state issues in November get brought up to there, because this is, I, I hope states, Use Wisconsin as an example to not let this happen, because if if any of this happens anywhere, the legitimacy of the election will be quickly undermined. Uh, You can't have I mean, if this was lucky, luckily, this primary didn't matter. Right. I mean, Bernie Sanders was going to lose. The only thing that really mattered was the the vote for the Supreme Court justice. Yeah, that that really certainly matters for Wisconsinites. But otherwise, this was a relatively benign uh, election, but in November they won't be there. And if this plays out in Wisconsin again, it's a really, really big deal. So, I mean, this is a good transition to go back to the larger question about voting in coronavirus, because you know Nick has valid points. I'd like to think that I have valid points. the 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 yeah, takeaway we could <laughs> <laughs> the takeaway that we can make from this is that Wisconsin was, you know, whatever blundered through this at the last minute. We've got what seven months to figure this out. There, yeah. if this happens in November. There's no excuse, right? It's either intentional that it's blundered or it's just <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, criminal neglect that we haven't made any plans yeah, or, or partisanship. Right. right. I mean, so that's, right. that's where yeah, we get right. back to what's playing out now, which it seems like Democrats are pushing for. And this is where, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to be too accusatory, but Trump makes it pretty simple. The Democrats are trying to basically push through plans to make vote by mail and then understandably, right, the, that, that doesn't benefit Republicans, right, making vote voting easier. But Trump outright says that. This is where Trump <laughs> says stuff that, that you know, you're not supposed to say out loud. Like in his press conference the other day, he said he said this multiple times now and yeah. something along the lines of, what did he say? Something like, for some reason that doesn't work out well for Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> he, he also said at one point that if, if we move to, uh, yeah, voting by mail, another Repu- Republicans will never win again, right? right. I mean, so you're right. He yeah. says those things. And then yesterday at the press conference, he was talking about how corrupt it is and that, what you know, people start voting by mail. You get these piles of right. votes. And then somebody, a reporter asked him, well, didn't you vote by mail in 2018? Well, of course I did. Right? <laughs> 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 Absurdity of it all. Yeah. Um, but you're right to say that now. So the issue of how we vote is going to become deeply partisan. And it appears that it's going to center on this issue of whether we can vote by mail. 
this strikes me as a stupid debate because there are Democratic states that that vote by mail. So why uh, Oregon and Hawaii and Colorado, but there are also Republican states that vote by mail. Utah, right? All of Utah is is, is mail voting. Um, the Secretary of State of Washington, which also does. Uh, voting by mail is a Republican and he loves it and talks about how it, it causes a turnout. And I, I'm not even convinced that if we move to a, a full mail system, that it would necessarily benefit one party or the other. Yeah. Yeah. I know the argument that if you have more turnout, that's going to hurt Republicans, but I'm not convinced that so, turnout through mail is the same thing as, as turnout for, you know, voting at polling stations. People still have to fill it out and mail it in. <laughs> right. People are lazy <laughs> right. in the end. <laughs> right. So I, I I don't know. I think this is a this appears to be like the issue that we're going to going to battle over. And and I think to your point, Phil, there's no reason why states can't figure this out. I mean, unless again, unless they screw up or partisanship. We, we, we right. Exactly. And that's the, the be all end all of this. And realistically, the only reason that we're talking about this with Wisconsin is because it's become so critically important since 2016. Nobody gave a shit when people yeah. were told to go out in Illinois to vote in the primary as the pandemic was was really kind of ramping up because nobody cares. We know what the outcome is going to be. For for Wisconsin, I think the the real villain, if we're going to point the finger at somebody, is the state legislature, because the governor from very early on was trying to say, let's move towards, um, you know, some type of other voting system. Uh, And the legislature is the one that said, no, 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 no. Um, They bear some responsibility. The secretary, the speaker of the of the House yesterday for Wisconsin was out telling people that it was safe to vote. And people have probably seen this video Mm. and he was in full PPE. I mean, he is covered (laughs) head to toe with gloves, mask and everything. And on his own Facebook page, he said, it's safe to vote i mean this is again very orwellian all of this where you know and again this is part of a broader effort by republicans in wisconsin to make voting more restrictive more difficult they've had a bunch of like in wisconsin you got to show up with an id uh if the depending on how the supreme court case in wisconsin plays out if the incumbent wins it's likely that they're going to expunge a lot of people from the voter rolls so i mean this is this is a local battle that has national implications i, w- I wonder if it i have i i'm sure there's people out there who have done research on this but i, I wonder if the, it's just i have to think through it it seems logical that this would be likely in sort of swing states or places where the democrats have a majority but a small majority right where the where the turnout actually matters for republicans to, or in the, the reverse democrats you know have a have a republicans have a small majority and it makes sense for democrats to try to uh limit the vote i mean so let me let let's talk about november I mean, this is all of this is why it, i think it's again i i am not uh, i'm not I don't hate federalism, but I'm not a big cheerleader for federalism. All elections, <laughs> national elections are, it seems like one place where there should be some level of federal, you know, oversight. This is, we run into these problems over and over where different states have different voting methods and machines. And it's just, it's just chaotic. And it seems mm-hmm. like having a, a national voting system in place um, would, would be a good thing. We do have some limits in, in place um, in that, you know, the, we have constitutionally mandated voting, you know, election dates at the federal level in, in ways that this, you know, the, the states have responded to coronavirus by pushing back the election. I, I think the world is going to look really different in November, hopefully. Um, and so it won't be this like lockdown point that we're in, although it's possible. But pushing elections back won't, in theory, be an option. 
So the vote by mail stuff matters, but I also like the the constitutionality of, of a set election date is also, as I have talked about many times before, it's in the constitution, but it's also a norm. There are lots of things in the constitution since Trump has taken over power that we just don't seem to care about anymore, right? Emoluments or whatever, like, oh, well, we don't really care about that. Is, is there a, you know, what is the threat? Like how high, like, should we be concerned about moving elections or, you know, the, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to to draw too straight of a line here, but the, the idea of like pushing back or canceling elections is from a comparative perspective, you know, one of the steps on the, on the platform, on the, the path towards consolidating power or breaking down democracy. Is there any chance that that happens or what if, assume that Trump decided or whoever the, you know, the Senate decided that they were going to push the election back despite the constitution, what would happen in that instance? Like, do you, do you have faith that the American people or the system would kick in and stop it? Do you think that anybody would even try that? I, I One of my big fears is somebody trying to postpone the election. Because I think you're right. Once you start tinkering there, it becomes a lot easier to change other things. And I, I think you're right. When you were talking, my comparative politics brain was going off. Like, once you start moving election dates, that's, that's what we've seen in liberal democracies. You try to move to your advantage. Although, I mean, I guess parliamentary systems do it as well. But it would be – it's different when you talk about the U.S. system. So that's why I think you have to do all of this in terms of voting – not moving election dates, because everything is so set, uh, especially in a time of Trump, right? I think it's unlikely that Trump would try to move the election because he probably benefits from uh, voting during a pandemic, right? I mean, those those demographics probably help him more than they would help uh, a Demo- Democratic candidate. But I don't know, that's, that's stuff that scares me. That's the how democracies die kind of stuff. But I mean, I feel like, especially in this situation, if we're talking about the the country and the world looking fundamentally different after this subsides, at least to some extent, the the physical changing of when an election is held doesn't seem to be nearly as as problematic as I, I guess it depends on on how it's framed and who is pushing the reform. If this comes from a legislative perspective, um, you know, not an executive order, something like that, where the the, the House and the Senate agree that this is the way that it, it, it should be done. We need to do this for, you know, to, to make sure that there isn't a significant portion of the population that isn't disenfranchised in this process and to make it more fair as it goes on. And you have broad public support for it. I don't necessarily see that as detrimental. I think it could be beneficial in the end if you have some sort of stopgap or fallback plan when this does happen. Again, if this is coming from a, 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 an executive position, the president or a governor in this particular situation that decides on a whim when something doesn't go their way, that they're going to take this step themselves. Yeah, that's a severe problem. But I do think that we need to be flexible enough to understand that this is an unprecedented event in our history and in world history uh, in modern world history that we need to contend with. And we can't necessarily just ascribe to the norms as we always have. Things are going to change. And that that probably means that the way that we conceive of our institutions and, and legislative practices need to change too. Which is why that having it laid out in advance, it's a good point, right? right. Which if, if you say, if you say that, um, 
you know, that this is the day it has to occur, which is what we have in a, in a crisis situation, you are forced with this choice of, you know, either disenfranchising or forcing people to risk their lives or destroying a norm. But yeah. It, coming up with some plan, you're exactly right. I think the idea of planning in advance for something like this makes a lot of sense. I, I worry that in this partisan era, we can't get that done. That it is does, also correct. Right. Yeah. It does feel like the Democrats have some power here. So, I mean, I, here's the thing. The Democrats are wanting, you know, to put, to, to require some level of voting by mail. Um, they're not in power, but they are in power in one branch of the Congress. And it does seem like they have, there's going to have to be more economic stimulus, right? Uh, the, the, the way this is going, there, there has to be more. And, and the Democrats haven't, it doesn't seem, played their card very well, you know, they, they're not great at this, it seems like, but it does seem like this is, you know, the incentive is for Trump and the Senate Republicans to like Trump leading up to an election needs stimulus, needs the, needs the economy to do well. They will totally, if Democrats basically put their foot down and say, we're not passing, which it sounds like some of them want to do, we're not going to pass another stimulus package unless there are some voting guarantees or voting, you know, provisions put into it. The Republicans are going to going to hammer them for it and right say that they are holding up the the stimulus packages. But I think in the long run, Trump has more to lose than congressional Democrats. But I I don't I don't. What do you think on that? Like, could the I, could the Democrats actually make a stand on this? I think it would all depend on how they framed it. And so so what I keep thinking is so yesterday at Trump's press conference when he kept going on and on about how dangerous voting by mail was, it seemed absurd to me. And I wonder whether that argument will, I mean, I get whether it falls into the partisan camps and we just say, oh, yeah, voting by mail is dangerous. Oh, no, it's great. Or do people say, like, come on, there are states that do this. There are Democrats, Democratic states that do this. There are Republican states that vote by mail. It, it can certainly be done. Um, do And so is the is the court of public opinion on the side of Democrats there where we've got to come up with something and it doesn't have to be mail, but there's got curbside. There's got to be these options. If they are savvy in how they pitch this, they could make Trump look silly because it it strikes me he's not worried about fraud. He's worried about the political implications of it, that he's not going to do well at the elections because of it. So if they're smart about that and and not over the top in terms of pushing it, I I think it's a winning argument that the American public is going to look at Wisconsin and say this was this was just unacceptable. It was it was stupid. Uh, I, I wonder whether Republicans in Wisconsin are going to pay a price for what they did in that state legislature where they were the only ones holding this up. And, it, you know, it's a national embarrassment now. So I, I do think there's a bit of traction, even though the Democrats will probably find a way to screw it up. <laughs> From, yeah, I mean, the polling, there was a poll that came out this week that showed that it, it was like, you know, 75 percent of Democrats support, you know, widening voting by mail. And it was like 65 percent of Republicans. So polling yeah. is totally on the side of Democrats. Now, that's like early polling before the whole Fox News machine kicks in and the partisanship yeah. stuff kicks in. So Trump's been hammering vote by mail. And so I, the question is, like, his base will pick that up, right? And they'll latch on to that message. But I, I think you're right. I think it's a it's a straightforward enough and commonsensical enough approach that, that those kind of swing voters in the middle can get behind it. But 
that does require the Democrats actually having a game plan and an argument in place rather than just saying people support it. We're going to push for it. And then, yeah. you know, not not being prepared for the Fox News machine to kick in. <laughs> well, it was well, a good try, guys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is that even if let's say by some miracle, everybody agrees that we want to move to a, a vote by mail system. Logistically, that doesn't happen overnight. That that is something where it's probably going to have to be a balance of of mail absentee you know curbside voting more polling stations it, it, it it's it's probably not possible to do all 50 states by mail at this point it's just you know you've got to have certain kinds of machines so it's going to have to be a a balanced approach and again that's that's a that's that's a winning argument for Democrats to say, hey, let's think outside the box. This is a, a moment of crisis. Let's find a way that everybody benefits and encourages more voting. Uh, it seems like it should be a simple, simple argument, but nothing simple in this era. Somebody has to come to your house and check your photo ID at some point, right? Right. <laughs> right, right. I mean, why can't we do it like, you know, how they vote for the popes? You know, do that on a national <laughs> scale. You get, you know, either black smoke or white smoke. Uh, you know, you got blimps up there evaluating it. It's safe. Uh, <laughs> I think you should really do like a, a blood sugar test. You should have to take a drop of blood so we can confirm your identity. I think that seems fair. I talked to a student of mine this morning who uh, was in Wisconsin and had to show her ID voting. And and then I had this conversation with her how, how you know, I just, for me, this is uh, very frustrating, right? I think you should, there's nothing in the Constitution says you need an ID. Illinois, you don't have to have an ID, right? I think that it's very political in nature. And she hadn't thought about that. She's like, oh, my goodness, right? It's easy to accept these new practices with not really thinking about whether they are good or bad and what the undertones of it all are. Well, I tend to think it's bad when they give me two ballots uh, or, uh, yeah, two ballots that uh, don't have my correct name on them when I ask for mine. So, yeah, I'll, I'll take that with a grain of salt. Thanks, though. That's right. <laughs> uh, beers? Let's do it. All right. Bill, you want to start us off? Yeah, so I'm I'm having uh, not to rub it in, but I'm having another Treehouse beer tonight. This is what three of the last four weeks. Uh, Treehouse, they're just they're just consistently good. So this one that I'm having is uh, Spring. It's one of their seasonal uh, brews. Um, it's an Imperial IPA. Uh, this one doesn't. Again, we talked. I guess last week I had the green and we talked about how Julius ranks higher than green, but we, you know, maybe like the green even better. This one, the spring is, is it doesn't rank as high. It doesn't score as high on, on the reviews, but I, I think it, I mean, it's just really good. It is more of that classic. I it, more so than the others. It has that uh, kind of uh, citrusy grapefruity. I mean, they describe it as what do they describe it as tangerines, pomelos and cantaloupe. I don't know if I've ever had a pomelo in my life, but uh, this this taste, you know, it's it's grapefruity. It's super hazy. It's, it's pronounced really cantaloupe. <laughs> it's um, uh, it's it's, you know, a classic IPA done really, really well. Um, it, it's 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 excellent. It's really good. Mm. Nick, how about you? Uh, I am having a, uh, a LexiCal Gap, which is from Pollyanna, which is uh, out of uh, Lamont, Illinois, um, so fairly local. Um, I was saying before we started recording, uh, if you guys like IPAs, like really pronounced IPAs, you'll really like this. There is <laughs> the hops just punch you right in the face. It's it's pretty. It's um it's it's pronounced. I, I, like I can't think of a, a better way to say it. There's not really any sweetness to it. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, a lot of heft to it. It's 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 a fairly standard IPA, but um, 
yeah it's it's pungent pungent um, that's, that's yes <laughs> so um yeah I, I i don't know i'll i'll say middling <laughs> yeah uh, I am having, I'm, I'm been on a half acre kick, a uh, beer a brewing company out of Chicago. And, and I, I, I love everything half acre does. This is a tome. It's a, it's their hazy pale ale. And I will say, I mean, it's, it's solid. It's a good hazy pale ale. I think I'm not as crazy about some of the hazy pale ales as, as maybe I am about other beers. And so this is, it's solid. It's a good beer. Um, it's a little hoppy, but kind of mixed with all the, you know, that Belgian fruity stuff. So it, it's good. It's not my, it's definitely not my favorite one from half acre, but I think if you liked hazy pale ales, this would be a solid one. Is a hazy pale ale just a new England IPA? Like what's, what's the, I think it's a little less juicy. Um, cause it strikes me. And again, I'm not the expert here, but the, when we get the new England ones, they, they seem more juicy more fruity more cantaloupe in them you know um this pomelo, one, lots of pomelo <laughs> that's right is this like feels a like there's a little bit of, of citrusy oh <laughs> uh, but so Sorry. solid beer um yeah but uh if you guys want to check out the beers we have on the podcast uh you can find us on untapped on ios or android just uh search for barstool politics and you will find us on there all right, let's jump into speed round. So this was an active week of President Trump attacking and firing inspector generals. On Monday, Trump replaced the Pentagon's acting inspector general, General Fine, who had been selected to chair the panel overseeing the rollout of the $2 trillion corona- coronavirus relief bill passed last month. But Fine's removal was not the only IG Trump removed. Most dramatically, late Friday evening, Trump ousted the intelligence community's inspector general, Michael Atkinson, uh, whose handling of the whistleblower report ultimately led to Trump's impeachment. Trump's targeting of Atkinson drew an unusual rebuke from Michael Horowitz, the inspector general of the entire Justice Department, who also oversees a council of inspectors general. Trump did not hold back his feelings about Atkins, saying, quote, I thought he did a terrible job. Absolutely terrible. He took a whistleblower report, which turned out to be a fake report. Not a big fan, unquote. <laughs> but Trump didn't stop there. He also spent time sharply attacking Health and Human Services Inspector General Christy Grimm, following a report from her office that described widespread testing delays and supply issues at the national hospitals. Uh, there are other rumors going around right now that he might fire another seven inspectors general at some point this week. Phil, you've been the target of countless IG so investigations. Many. <laughs> so, so what do you make of Trump's actions this week? So this, this story amongst all the all the stories that, you know, have come out about Trump and how he does things differently and things we should be concerned about. This one goes pretty high on my list. This is one that, that I think most people don't aren't going to necessarily pay that much attention to. But to understand, I mean, inspectors general are, are put in place. They were created, you know, at some point, what, 50 years ago or something with the sole purpose of reviewing basically government accountability, right? They are there to review governmental practices to make sure that they're, you know, some at some level efficient, but but mostly that they're, you know, not violating laws and ethics and all of that, that they are an, an oversight um, entity. In the past, I mean, they were viewed largely as hands off. Barack Obama fired one inspector general during his term, and it was a huge, it was a big deal. The person he fired, my understanding was somebody who was, it sounds like a total asshole, like wouldn't show up for meetings and was rude to people and all sorts of other, like there were lots of problems with him, but it was a big deal. So Trump, you know, trying to remove the oversight element of government sends immediately sends up red flags for me. And in the context of these, the one guy who who was involved in the uh, whistleblower report, that seems very, you know, retribution-y. 
Um, but the other one, you know, the, the Trump administration put up a fight at, with this coronavirus bill. They initially they wanted Steve Mnuchin to have basically total control over the whatever five hundred million dollars or billion dollars. It's all does it doesn't matter anymore. So the numbers are beyond anything I'll ever money. see. A money. whole bunch of money. Um, and you know, in government based the Senate and the House rightfully said you don't get total control over this we're going to put some inspectors general in charge of it. And then they waited, what, two weeks before they fired the inspector general and then attacking another. There are reports that he's thinking of firing up to like seven inspectors general. This is a this is a big deal. And and it because it gets at the idea of I mean, it's about corruption, right? I mean, the whole idea is to make sure that the government is acting ethically. And if you're targeting the inspectors general, I, that's that should just that should worry all of us. I think I, I, that I'm, am I overreacting to that? No. Nick? <laughs> <laughs> My question is why why do we have so many inspectors general to begin with? It seems excessive at this point. Government Back- government is bad, Nick. <laughs> the only way to solve bad government is more government. <laughs> what I've heard. You're sounding very Tom like. I know, right? Um, no, I, 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 I think that I, you know, Tom and I have both talked about it. Um, me probably more than Tom that, um, um, overbearing bureaucracy is not necessarily the best way to run a government. But I think in this particular situation, the timing and the the targeting of the individuals who are who are involved in this, um is 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 really problematic uh for in the middle of this this unprecedented crisis you're going to go after someone who is responsible for the whistleblower complaint which whatever you you can talk about the efficacy of that and whether or not they should be removed or not but the timing is certainly not not the best um and as as the crisis kind of continues to unfold uh, and especially the uh, with the administration's uh, early attempts that, like you said, Phil, um, have Mnuchin kind of be the the czar of, of this this stimulus rollout. Um, having some oversight there, I think, is a, a significantly uh, better option than having a, a member of the executive branch just do that without any sort of oversight. Um, it, it just it it shows to me that. There are elements of the administration, the administration, and probably Trump himself, who don't necessarily understand the best way not only to play to to play the the standard political game, but um, understand the best way to govern during a crisis, or or even you know mm-hmm. during standard governing practices or or moments. Um, it, like I, 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 I don't know. I just I can't defend them in this particular situation. Well, it's another way in which we see that Trump is not a conventional Republican because historically Republicans have liked inspector generals because they hold a government accountable. Right. I mean, you know, you don't want another layer of bureaucracy, but these individuals play an important role to prevent government excess. Uh, and so if you look at these a couple of these specific examples, obviously the intelligence community one is payback. He sees the, you know, he saw the whistleblower complaint, which whether, again, to Nick's point, whether we agree or disagree on the impeachment process, that was a legitimate process in terms of the whistleblowing element to it. Um, so, you know, that's clearly payback. And, uh, and the other and the other angle, you know, with the with the with the two trillion dollar spending bill, I mean, that, there's, there's real reason when you're spending two trillion dollars to say, let's have some accountability 
And what Trump is saying is like, I don't like any of these watchdogs. You can trust me. And no, you know, Republicans don't trust government and we shouldn't trust anybody, including the Trump administration. Yeah. And, and Trump, again, it doesn't, as we mentioned on the previous topic or whatever, he doesn't hide it. Like he just says it outright with the, with the intelligence one. I mean, he didn't, he didn't come up with some excuse. I mean, they did it in a classic, you know, Friday night sort of firing type of way, but yeah, he openly talks about then how, how he was fired for the, the whistleblower stuff, the, the health and human services one, right. The, the, in which they, they issued a report that talked about how the government has mishandled the, the coronavirus stuff, that there were reports and knowledge of this and how it's been bungled. That's, we want right we want a government that is you know when they screw up that we talk about it we correct it and address it i mean in the end trump doesn't like to be questioned right i mean that that is core to his personality so that it's it's yeah i mean the, walter schaub is the i know we're out of time but walter schaub was the office of government ethics uh director under obama and then for the, under trump for six months and then before he resigned he i mean he said if you haven't seen it, I think they published it in USA Today or something today. They published his whole Twitter feed about it. He basically points to this as, I mean, he he's not just raising red flags. He's, you know, this is the, this isn't even the canary in the coal mine. This is like, you know, we're we're watching the death of of government accountability and and you know corruption uh, taking over. He's 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 very concerned about it. Well, and the health and human service case is really an interesting one because at the press conference two days ago, Trump, somebody asked a question about that. And he just went on and on about how this individual served in the Obama administration. But she had been there, I think, going all the way back to the George W. Bush administration through Obama. Through Clinton, even. Yeah. So it's, so these are these are bureaucrats, right? These are nonpartisan political figures who are there. So again, it's another way in which Trump can politicize something that really isn't political. doesn't mean that, that they're always good at their job. But yeah, it uh, another way in which he's undermining norms. Bunch so. of Washington fat cats trying to save their jobs. <laughs> Ridiculous. All I know is I haven't gotten my government check yet, and I'm very upset about it. So, well, I, Nick, maybe the Navy screw up is causing a problem here, you know, because I think those checks are on boats. Um, so, <laughs> so let's jump to our next topic. So the Navy on Tuesday, acting Navy Secretary uh, Thomas Modley resigned a day after he called the ousted commander of the USS Theodore Roosevelt stupid in an address to the ship's crew not a good idea to call you know the crew liked him but nevertheless uh, his resignation comes a little more than a week after captain brett Krugier, uh then commanding officer of the uss theodore roosevelt sent a memo warning of the coronavirus spreading among sailors on the aircraft carrier the memo leaked and moldly subsequently removed Krugier from command moldly said the captain was either quote too naive or too stupid to be in command of the aircraft carrier, saying that the outgoing uh, that going outside the chain of command with his memo represented a betrayal of the Navy. While Trump was not involved in the decision, he did criticize Captain Crozier for writing the letter, saying, quote, he didn't have to be Ernest Hemingway, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> but that shouldn't, but he said that shouldn't, uh, someone shouldn't be fired for having a bad day. Uh, Phil, you're a big fan of the Navy and boats in general. What's your thoughts on these developments? I mean, this this is the story is fascinating to me. I, this kind of seems like a microcosm of the Trump administration, or like a, this this is like summing up, you know, a lot of the the issues with the Trump administration in one in one story. Um, and it goes back to what we were talking about before oversight and the, and Trump doesn't like to be criticized and the administration doesn't like to be criticized. You know, the, the idea that runs through all of this is that criticism is bad. 
and bad news is criticism, right? So it's not, it's not, I want to hear where I'm screwing up or where we have issues and I want to correct it. It's that if you point out something that is being done wrong, then that's criticism and you, you should go screw yourself, right? It's like, I just want to hear the positive news, right? And, and, and there's an arrogance to that, um, that kind of carries over. I mean, I think about groupthink, right? And, and this is, seems like an example of which Trump has, doesn't like criticism. He surrounds himself with people who won't criticize him or don't criticize him. And that creates this sort of sealed off world in which you're doing everything right, right? Because there is no criticism. And so someone who is critiquing you is obviously wrong because everyone in your world thinks it's wonderful. So what you have is a guy who had the, what's his name, uh, Modley or whatever, the secretary of the Navy had military experience, but not a ton of it, who, who you have a, a, an officer on a, you, you don't get to be head of, you know, a captain of an aircraft carrier by chance, right? Like you have to be damn good at your job to get to that point. Who is raising alarm bells about people on his ship who are getting, who are, you know, whose lives are at risk. And you have Modley who, or Modley or whatever his name is, yeah. who doesn't just relieve him of command, who flies halfway around the world to basically dress down the crew of the, of the Roosevelt, who, who all cheered for Crozier when he was, when he was uh, removed from duty. And of course, somebody re recorded what he said, right? <laughs> but it's the idea that there's an arrogance to that, right? That like, how dare you question us? How dare you, you, you not be okay with how we're doing? How dare you speak out about things that we're doing wrong? Mm -hmm. That that seems like, I mean, that is that level of, I don't want to hear criticism. I don't, I'm not looking to improve, right? I just want to be um, in charge and for everyone to respect that. That seems like a really, you know, good snapshot of how Trump has gone through his presidency. But you see it in the coronavirus stuff in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nick. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I so his original point where he's saying the, the captain was either too naive or too stupid, I, I think was more in reference to and I think he said it specifically to um, that this wouldn't leak to the media. Yeah, which memo, you know yeah like i get that like there's a there's chain of command issues there you know you're supposed to go through certain channels i get that but in this particular situation and based off of the reaction that we've seen again to your uh, your uh point phil um the response has just been bizarrely stalinist <laughs> for <laughs> for lack of a better term i love when we can bring stalin into the podcast yeah just trying to dress down an, an entire crew saying that they're somehow disloyal because of this and you know everybody has seen the video of the the crew cheering the captain after he he leaves the ship um clearly in support of of his decision and uh, you know wanting to to make sure he's all right with the consequences of this um just that that really that that did not sit well with me at all um and the administration seems to be doubling down on it which i i still don't understand um i like i i i don't know this is such an easy thing to to do like it it, it never had to be a news story all you had to do was take care of the issue and and just right. be done with it like no and one ever would have known yeah, they've done everything that the captain asked for in this letter, right? I mean, basically, they're they're emptying the ship, they're cleaning it down, they're they're taking care of the soldiers. Everything that he wanted done is now being done. And again, this is, 
you know, you're supposed to get to higher levels because you can handle a crisis. And uh, obviously the captain here felt like, you know, they say his the critique of his actions is that he went outside the chain of commands. Command. He probably did that because I'm guessing he tried to work <laughs> through the chain of command and didn't see results, right? So this is an issue where he he thought it was necessary to send a memo. And obviously they say he included like 20 or 30 people on the memo. The part of the, the you know, there he was a, all. Right, exactly. There's a reason you do that. This guy is not an idiot, right? I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, Phil. You don't get to be captain of a, an aircraft carrier. And as Trump says, it's a nuclear-powered one, right? So that you got to be super smart uh, to get there without understanding politics. And the reason you include a lot of people on here is that it raises an issue and the soldiers get, and take, get taken care of. And I think that's ultimately what this captain wanted. And he comes off a hero um, you know, it's only Modley or however you say his name that looks like the dummy here because he didn't have enough, uh, I don't know, grace to kind of understand what was going on here and make this a non-issue to say, uh, absolutely, we're going to take care of this, you know, f- firing him. And then the day afterwards, he doubled down on his story after the speech and then ultimately said, no, I, I didn't mean that. So he just comes across yeah, never, never apologized or anything. No. He wrote like a two page letter. I mean, here's the thing about this is if you've ever seen a movie, <laughs> right? Like the commander who risks his career for his, for his, you know, soldiers or whatever is the hero. The guy who come, who swoops in to, to chastise everyone is the villain. Like it is as clear as it can be. This was like such an easy victory for the Trump administration to rather than attack him him or rather than the navy to attack him you praise him you slap a medal on him you bring him in and let him stand next to trump and talk about you know this great american hero it's such an easy win and they just screwed it up in every single way possible (laughs) that makes me think i wonder whether i mean because trump has been hedging the last couple days about this whether trump senses that because trump he likes movies right and he, he he i think he gets that this was a screw up i wonder whether they won't bring the captain back and find a way of you know, making him a hero, giving him some medal or something uh, just as a way to to make this not go away, but to, to keep him immune from the ugliness. So go away. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, let's move on to next. I'm interested. I'm excited about this next topic. So um, we're going to talk about the imperial presidency. So there was a fascinating article uh, written this week by Corey Schottke, who is the deputy director general of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, long title, uh, in the Atlantic. She has held several high positions in the U.S. defense and state departments and on the National Security Council, as well as being a foreign policy advisor to the McCain-Palin campaign. In the article, she argues that Trump has shifted gears and taken a much more hands-off approach to the coronavirus. This is very much in keeping with what she argues is the founder's original vision. However, he's doing it at precisely the wrong time. I want to read a short passage from the article. Uh, Quote, President Donald Trump has sometimes used the executive powers of the American presidency with ruthless aplomb. In an administration not conspicuously adept at working the machinery of government, he has effectively circumvented it. He has revealed how many perceived constraints on the presidency are normative rather than statutory or constitutional, thereby dramatically increasing the powers of the executive branch. Yet in the first real crisis to befall his presidency, Trump is utilizing virtually none of the powers of his office. Rather than bringing the slippery inventiveness of his team that his team used when building the border wall or enacting the travel ban, he's settling for ineffectual bluster. In an ironic term, 
turn, Trump is now acting much like the kind of tightly constrained executive the authors of the Constitution had in mind. The United States could use a vigorous president right now. Phil, I found this to be such an astute, astute and really thoughtful observation. Trump really has taken a step back and not been an imperial president at a time when most presidents historically look to seize power. What's, what's your read on all of this? So um, I, I find this really interesting because when you first sent this to me earlier this week, I, you know, I've, I had it's it's thought provoking to think about. It. It's been frustrating to watch the 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 administration do as little as they have. But as I thought about this article more throughout the over the last couple of days, I, I, I have come around to the thought that it's totally wrong <laughs> or Thank that it's you. naive, naive. <laughs> Um, and, and here's here's why I, I think about the, the example that immediately popped into my head when I read this is um, I wish I could remember. There's an article that I'm sure I assigned it because you probably brought it to my attention at some point. There's an article about the Bush doctrine that I use in my foreign policy class. And one of the pillars of the Bush doctrine that people talk about was was American unilateralism, right? That screw the international community. We're going to do it our way. And one of the fascinating things that you can see during the Bush administration was that our unilateralism, that one of the things that, that I sort of point out in class is that we were unilateral even in our multilateralism. So it, what that means is there, the international community wanted um, essentially us to have one-on-one -on -one talks with North Korea when George Bush was president. And the Bush administration insisted that the international community do it. Like, so everyone else in the world wanted us to act in a certain way. And we said, you know, no, the entire, you know, we're going to have six party talks. So we were acting unilaterally. Basically, it's our way or the highway, even when it was about multilateralism, right? We're all going to do it, but we're going to do it the American way. This seems like that to me, right? This is, hmm. this is restraint, but it's not restraint because he has respect for the office. He is at the same time using an imperial presidency to fire inspectors general, right? That we've talked about to push all sorts of other things that he wants to get done, trying to, you know, get stuff done behind the scenes. It's not, it's not a restraint of the presidency. It's just that he doesn't care about the coronavirus mm -hmm. situation. It's, it's about sort of his worldview. And so it is a Trump centered worldview. It's that, you know, you said one of the quotes is that, um, uh, He's utilizing virtually none of the powers of his office. That's not true. He's just not using the powers of his office for the goal that she wants him to be using them for. Mm -hmm. He's using them for all sorts of other stuff right now. He is still, you know, circumventing the institutions of power. He's just using it to interfere in the coronavirus. <laughs> you know, the, the government, the government's like seizing shipments of PPE that states have ordered. States have had to go out of the ways for doing it. So I, I don't think, I think that the idea that it would be nice if, if we have an imperial presidency, it would be nice if it would be used to actually help in a crisis. I get that. Mm -hmm. But to in some way say that Trump is actually living up to founders' expectations of what the presidency is because he's restrained, I think is incredibly narrow-sighted. Oh, this is, this is, I, I'm enjoying this. Nick, <laughs> Nick, your turn. Yeah, point, point one. I'm sure you could go back and uh, probably fairly recently in history and find authors by the same or find uh, articles by the same author that rail against the imperial presidency. And now you want one in this particular situation. So you can fuck off there. Um, point two on this whole thing. I will no longer be tagging Corey Shockey on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, like this, this is, I, I, I'm not even sure that this, this is a, a a good situation to 
invoke discussions of the imperial presidency. We we spent the entire first half of the podcast talking about how this is an unprecedented moment in in U.S. and in, in in global history, modern global history. I, I think that you know you talk about firing inspector generals. Realistically, any president has the ability to do that, whether you agree with it or not. I'm not necessarily uh, um, convinced that that falls under the purview of the expanded powers of an imperial president. It just is what it is. So change the the norms or, or the ability to do that um, going forward. But I, 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 I'm still of the mindset that in this particular situation, it isn't that Trump is living up to the founders' expectations, but he's living up to a, a conception of what a president should be at its most basic level, not mm. in an instinctual way, not in a, 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 uh, a practical way. Um, but on top of that, I, I think that this particular situation, again, another point that we brought up earlier is that they don't necessarily know how to handle this situation, just mm. like any other country clearly has no idea how to handle this particular situation. Um, I, I, I don't think that it's them uh, it's certainly not that they have respect for the Constitution uh, or that they're they're abdicating in their in, in certain uh, duties that they have. They just don't know how to effectively use the levers that that are available to them, similarly to almost every country around the, the, the world at this point. Um, yeah. Besides, you know, the, the the dictatorships that are welding people <laughs> into their homes and then setting them on fire. But whatever. Well, here's here's I'll make a quick defense of it because I, I, I think she's on to something. And I think you're Phil, you're right in that a lot of this can be explained by Trump's indifference to the coronavirus. You know, he cares about his wall. He cares about, you know, certain issues where he wants to use executive power. And this is clearly an issue where he is not. But it is one where I think. I think he should be. And I, and the reason I would point to is like the way in which they have flipped uh, power back to the states. So Jared Kushner, who shouldn't be anywhere near any of this, right, any sort of decision making, is arguing that, you know, we should hold our state governors accountable because the, you know, the lead here should be the states. And then Trump the other day, I think it was just yesterday or the day before he said, I'm here if your governors fail you. Like, are you kidding me? Like, no, there is a role for the federal government here. If you have states bidding against each other for PPE, that's 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 where federalism should should play a role. And and Trump needs to play a federal role there. Not necessarily the George W. Bush post 9-11. You know, we got to torture everybody kind of role, but, you know, some sort of activist role. And it feels like he's running away from this crisis. And and I'm not a big believer in investing all this power in the office of the presidency. But this does strike me as a moment where leadership matters. And I feel like it's whether it's indifference or to your point, Nick, like not knowing what to do. They're trying to pass the buck back to the states. And I don't I, I don't think that's that's fair to, to clarify. I 100 percent agree that they put the, the, the office of the president should be doing more and that there is a huge role for the federal government. And I think there's going to be, you know, in hindsight, uh, massive condemnation of the way the, the Trump administration handled this this crisis. I, my critique, though, is to to say that that comes from some sort of restraint on Trump's part. I, yeah. I, it, it is still it is still an imperial presidency. It's it, the presidency is only about it's that Trump is is using the powers of the imperial presidency, 
not because he believes the the executive <laughs> should be powerful. It's because he he wants to. It's you know narcissism, right? It's it's that he's yeah. using the power of the imperial presidency to avoid blame. He's holding two hour press conferences every day to push you know to critique others all in the interest of basically making it seem like, hey, it's not my fault, right? Like this yeah. is not a big deal. And if it is a big deal, it's Andrew Cuomo's fault, not mine, right? Right, right. <laughs> Which is like a, a political motivation, not right. a national security crisis. Right. He was tweeting again today about his ratings. Right. He's got to stop doing that. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's jump to our final topic here. I'm excited about this one. We're going to end on a fun note. So gentlemen... I'm going to detail two recent events two very specific, at two very specific locations, and you need to tell me which one you think is the more dangerous place to be. <laughs> Example number one, WrestleMania. WrestleMania is the Super Bowl of wrestling, uh, attracting thousands of fans watched on television by many and watched by, on television by many more. And this year, it didn't let a global pandemic get in that way. Uh, the event was broadcast over the weekend uh, from the WWE training facility in Florida, 53 performers appeared across 18 different matches, including one match with five wrestlers and one referee in the ring at once. Uh, the WWE said it exercised every precaution to make sure the talent and staff were safe, but I'm not sure that's entirely possible amid a pandemic. So example number one, WrestleMania. Example number two, <laughs> cougars on the Santiago streets. In the Chilean capital, Santiago, a third cougar was caught in the streets this week, and another was sighted wandering, <laughs> this is so crazy, in a residential neighborhood. Since the movement restriction brought about by the coronavirus, the streets have fallen quiet, and the cougars have taken advantage by venturing into the city looking for new places to get food. So to summarize, the coronavirus has led to more cougars wandering the Santiago streets, places that Phil and I have both wandered <laughs> through. So I ask you, gentlemen, what is the more dangerous place? Phil, do you want to start us off? You know, we've you and I have wandered the Santiago streets looking for ice cream. So yeah. you <laughs> and it was there were times it was scary. <laughs> so yeah, we. <laughs> My first, Bill and I went to Santiago for a conference years ago. It's not high on my list of places to go again. <laughs> uh, but I do have to say, you as, as you were reading this, and it was talking about the Cougars wandering street, the food was damn good there. Yeah. And so I, I don't blame the Cougars coming in and, and looking for food in, in Santiago. Um, I've also been to a, a WWE match in my life because oh, yeah, I was brother. raised in the South. Um <laughs> <laughs> this one's this one's a, a, a tough one for me. I have lots of jokes about Santiago and wrestling, but I suppose in the end, <laughs> it comes down to whose life is. Are you more likely to get mauled and killed by a cougar in the streets of Santiago, or die from coronavirus after going to a stupid wrestling match? And the answer <laughs> is wrestling. Right, you're more likely to die from that. Um, not to yeah, I, I I could take lots of shots at wrestling fans, but I won't. They're wonderful people, I'm sure. <laughs> Good save. Nick, what's more dangerous? Uh, um, so, I, I mean, they broadcast the they broadcast WrestleMania without an audience, correct? It was really right. just the wrestlers and the referee. This is my issue, which I think is going to be an issue as more and more time goes on, especially this month as we're all under lockdown. If there is a specific amount of time that you are under quarantine, you know you are not infected or have the potential to be infected. You are with a set group of people and they are also under those same circumstances. 
there should be no reason why you can't go out somewhere together as a group of people or interact as a group of people somewhere other than where you were originally. Like wrestle. Like wrestle, <laughs> yes. I expect to see that a lot in the the forest preserves and the, the, the parks around here in the next week or two. Um, so that doesn't really scare me at all because I'm sure as shit going to do that in a few weeks because I'm going to go crazy if I have to sit in this house for three more weeks without doing anything. Um, cougars be scary, man. I don't really yes. like that. I don't so, like yeah. that at all. And are we sure this is real? This isn't like one of those things where people put it out there that buffaloes are now roaming Buffalo, New York, and nature is healing itself and we're the virus kind of thing i, I found it on the internet you sure Nick, it so wasn't photoshop this isn't dinosaurs <laughs> roaming through dinosaur colorado something like that it's, it's I, got it's got to be true before you talk about i feel the need to amend my answer because the way this question was set up it said you, you specifically said attracting thousands of fans so if there are only 50 wrestlers in the room i didn't realize that it's definitely Santiago, Chile. I, there were there were there were wild dogs all over that city, and if you throw some cougars into that as well, it's it's not a good. It's, oh, I, man, I'm switching my boat. dog fight. <laughs> well, all right. So it still is WrestleMania because the chance. Okay, so Nick, you mentioned scary, right? So danger versus scary. Wandering the streets with potential cougars is very scary, but the odds are pretty low. The odds of getting coronavirus when you're wrestling with a bunch of w- – that's much higher. And I know what you're saying, Nick, but I have no faith that those WWE wrestlers are containing themselves to, like, you know, just their family. So, so the multiplier effect. And I will say, to Phil's point about Santiago at times being scary, and I loved – you know, the Santiago, Chile was a wonderful place to visit, but at times was very scary. There was a time Phil and I were wandering the streets and some guy started yelling that yelling these terms like this phrase at us. And we didn't know what he was doing. So we just, of course, ran away. Um, and then we came ran? back to the hotel. And of course, it was very scary, Nick. And they were yelling. They were calling us gay cowboys. <laughs> so, All right. Yes. Which is it's not the only time we've been accused of that. Bill, so. It's a good thing you ran. No, no, we both had cowboy hats on, but otherwise, I don't know where that came from. Well, and you had your chaps too. That's right. So, you know, for me, like the idea of 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 cougars wandering the Santiago streets is pretty terrifying. But I think the more dangerous thing is still the WWE. You have to practice good social have you, distancing. Have you factored into your modeling that the coronavirus mortality rates like three percent, and the mortality rate of getting mauled by a cougar has got to be close to a hundred percent. It's got to be, yeah. <laughs> This is true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you confront a cougar, you're over. It's done. <laughs> oh, my God. That was a good one, Nick. That's, I'm not going to bother with that. I'm just going to hit that right there. Um, can, you, uh, can you start the stuff for me? As sure. So uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, like yeah, follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter, Facebook at Barstool Politics, Twitter at, Bar- at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Uh, Nick posts all the beers on Untapped. So if you're a, a big beer guy, uh, friend us on Untapped. Um, you know, if you're looking for some some good gear, you know, Barstool Politics gear is great. If you're stuck in the house, there's nothing better than a Barstool Politics hoodie. It's fantastic. <laughs> if you like coffee, these mugs are brilliant. Every morning, I'm drinking out of my Barstool Politics mug. So I don't think he's washed it yet. Right? It's that good. <laughs> right. Um, you went through the social stuff, right? Uh, the, the podcast yeah. itself, you can find on, uh, 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 wow. Um, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google play music, 
um, Apple Podcasts, uh, most major podcasting platforms. Definitely check that out. Um, and then, again, we do uh, these broadcasts live on Facebook. We're probably going to do that on uh, YouTube uh, as well uh, in the coming weeks. So definitely check that out. Um, anything else that I missed, guys? That's good. Or that you missed? Watch out, Watch out for cougars. Watch out for cougars. Uh, and I just realized there's a lot of meaning to that, but yep. it's okay. Oh, so many jokes <laughs> I wanted to make on these posts, and I, I just I couldn't. On that note, we'll see you guys next week. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Shut up.